Welcome to ACNL in Action, brought to you by the Association of California Nurse Leaders. I'm your host, Charlene Platon. Our guest today is Dr. Taya Wozniak, Assistant Professor of Public Health and Healthcare Administration at Concordia University, Irvine. Dr. Wozniak served as program director for several nonprofit organizations in the Southern California region before receiving her PhD in Health and Strategic Communication from Chapman University earlier this year and accepting the professorship at Concordia. Dr. Wozniak's area of research focuses on health misinformation, specifically strategies to combat health misinformation within the relationship between patients and providers. Welcome, Taya. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to share a little bit about my research interests, including health communication, health misinformation. Very excited to be here. Yes, we're really excited to have you as well. And you have such an impressive background. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey and what led to your interest in public health. Yeah, for sure. So I um, grew up in a small rural town in Indiana, actually, um, and watched my older brother go to medical school. And then I decided um, I wanted something very different, came out to California for uh, my undergrad, where I studied uh, molecular biology at Azusa Pacific University. Um, I actually originally um, wanted to go to medical school, but really um, for my mental health, physical health, I didn't think that was the avenue I wanted to go down. So immediately following undergrad and my graduation, I worked at um, UCLA in a research lab looking at metabolic engineering of bacteria uh, for use in biological synthesis of biofuels. Lots of, um, you know, big words there, but really um, just wanted to do more research, see if that's the avenue I wanted to take. Um, but during that gap year um, between undergrad and graduate school, I became very interested in public health, um, specifically maternal and child health. So I really um, loved that area of research and um, public health research in particular. So I decided to return uh, to get my master of public health from UCI, so University University of California, Irvine, where I chose an emphasis in um, sociocultural diversity and health. And I focused uh, there um, in that emphasis on program planning, implementation, and evaluation. And so this led me to do several years of work in the nonprofit sector and programmatic leadership. I worked um, and served several different populations, including critically ill children and their families, young mothers, teen mothers, and then and people without housing. And so from there, I returned um, actually back to academia uh, for my PhD, as you said, in health and strategic communication. And then I currently teach at, Cha or at uh, Concordia University, Irvine's uh, healthcare programs, specifically within their Master of Public Health program. Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing about your journey. And I am curious, um, with your experience in the nonprofit world, did you have um, anything that prompted you to return to academia from that experience or, or what kind of prompted that decision? Yeah, I had a wonderful experience uh, working in, in the nonprofit sector. Um, nonprofit organizations do a, a lot of wonderful, incredible work um, for the, the local community. However, I realized quickly um, that nonprofits are constantly trying to stay afloat. Um, it's really difficult to make uh, substantive changes, introduce innovative ideas, um, evaluate current programs, and implement, you know, translational research, which I had uh, grown to love in my public health program. 
So I wanted to return back to academia to be more at the forefront of innovative translational research and use my knowledge and skills, hopefully then to help uh, nonprofit organizations become more efficient, become more effective and successful in helping people. Those things that they don't really have the resources, time, um, energy for. So during my time as a PhD student, I learned um, also how much I enjoyed teaching and mentoring and just decided becoming a professor would allow me to pursue kind of all of my passions of teaching, mentoring, research, consultation, so I can do a little bit of, of everything. That's great insight. And I did want to ask too, because I know that your work really focuses on health misinformation. And what brought you to focus on that specifically as a research topic? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier, I have one brother. Um, now he's a pediatrician. Uh, my younger brother is in medical school right now. So I'm kind of sandwiched um, by <laughs> medical professionals. Um, but they they both have shared over the years copious experiences with patients um, sharing health misinformation within um, doctor's office visits, particularly um, my, my older brother, who's a pediatrician. He encounters parents and caregivers daily who share health misinformation. Um, and daily is not an exaggeration, but, but for example, um, you know, essential oils gained incredible popularity in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years. And many parents and caregivers started to use essential oils to treat all sorts of pediatric ailments. Um, and, and one, I remember one story, one ailment um, that they were trying to treat was strep throat, um, which mm. needs antibiotic prescription, not to mention essential oils can, you know, be good for some things, but can also be toxic for children, depending on the concentration, use, age of the patient. And, and so, you know, I'm hearing these stories from, from my brothers and um, ironically, my interest in health misinformation started before even the pandemic began, which then <laughs> opened the door wide um, for, for research in this area. That's so interesting. And, and as a nurse myself, I know that health misinformation can be fairly rampant in clinical practice. So I do appreciate you sharing the, um, what experiences that your brother has been going through. I know that especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, this experience has not been uncommon. And there's been quite a bit of health misinformation, even if you're not in the healthcare field, that many people have been experiencing. And what do you think are some of the causes of health misinformation, just as a starting point? Yeah, this this might be a, a long answer, but I, I think at first it's important um, in any research that you do, but particularly health misinformation. It's not a new phenomenon, but um, research you know is growing in that field. But it's important to define health misinformation and first distinguish it from closely related terms like disinformation. So um, the way I I um, define health misinformation is inaccurate or misleading health messaging that lacks scientific evidence. So while both um, misinformation and disinformation can be deceiving and misleading, disinformation is intentionally malicious and deceptive while misinformation can, can be, you know, just something someone puts out there, not intentionally to, to deceive. So that makes it a little more difficult, I think. Um, but it's important not to label something, in my opinion. So there's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot more attention, a lot more research on health misinformation, but it's important to be, um, 
to not label something as health misinformation quickly if there's not scientific consensus. So I, I want to, I guess, emphasize that science and scientific method are all about testing, repeat testing, asking questions, which we should continue to do for all health-related information. But I think the causes are twofold. So um, since health misinformation is a form of communication, like you and I are talking to each other, uh, issues arrive both arise both from the sender and the receiver of health-related information. So first, from the sender point of uh, view or that perspective of health information, um, you know, whether this information comes from public health professionals, medical providers, the average person, um, anyone that's communicating health mis or health information, there's, there's often difficulty in relaying highly technical health research to the public or to the average person. So even recently, the CDC director outlined an overhaul of the agency, and a lot of those specifics were towards how the CDC communicates information to the public. So truthfully, we all need help in learning how to effectively communicate health-related information to the public. So that's, that's one side. And then the other side where I see you know, a lot of research being done or needed to be done. Um, there's a major problem with the receiver end of health communication. So, you know, research uh, states that health misinformation spreads faster into a wider audience than truth on social media platforms, online platforms. Um, but there are certain characteristics of individuals that may increase susceptibility to spreading and believing health misinformation, including sociocultural health disparities or low health literacy. Um, so there's both, you know, health communication, health education factors, um, and the cause of health misinformation, as well as, you know, health communication and education are the key to stopping the spread of and belief in this, what I would call an info, infodemic, uh, like an <laughs> epidemic of, of information of sorts. That's so interesting. And I really appreciate you sharing the definitions of health information and misinformation and disinformation, because all of those are really terms that I think have been used interchangeably a lot, especially in the last few years. And I do, I am curious in terms of the spread of information, you mentioned that misinformation is shared um, quite rapidly. Is there any reason to why that would be shared so quickly versus, I guess you would say normal, normal health information? Yeah, I think health misinformation, whether it's shared on social media or um, websites, usually have usually has an aura about it that makes it clickbait. Um, something's interesting, something's new, or something um, that people haven't seen before, or you know something that aligns with your worldview that you want to learn more about, even if it isn't scientifically backed. Um, but we need to do a better job as a whole in the health community of getting on top of those things quickly and being voices um, with within those social media platforms, online platforms. But yeah, there's um, there's some research that's been done of why health misinformation might be um, might spread more quickly. But I wouldn't say there's consensus on that. That, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of the time, the misinformation can appeal to our specific perspectives, as you, as you said, our specific emotions about a certain topic, especially one that's very charged, like the COVID-19 pandemic. And I, I do want to ask, too, in terms of 
patients having access to so much more information than they used to before, I would say that now people have more access than ever to, um, to information than they did in the past, which you've highlighted can be helpful and damaging in some cases, but what are your thoughts overall when it comes to patient access to so much of this information, including misinformation? And do you think it's more of a good thing when it comes to um, patients having access to this, or does it come with much more challenges, especially with our, especially for our healthcare workers? Yeah, I think, I think both things can be true simultaneously. So I believe access to, to information is important because it increases engagement and increases interest of patients. Um, Overall, we want engaged patients because they're generally more, what I would say, proactive and interested in bettering their health and well-being, which is a good thing in public health. Um, However, I do think this changes the relationship dynamic between a healthcare provider and their patient. Since patients are are better educated, patient-provider interaction and, and the communication there requires dialogue and more of a shared decision-making process. So health misinformation, as I mentioned earlier, is not a new phenomenon, but we do see a greater surge um, due to new media channels. And uh, so I do think However, the patient-provider relationship has changed, like I said, and healthcare providers used to act more as a a parent giving order to patients. So nurses, doctors just giving the order or the treatment, Um, while current patients want more of a peer-to-peer relationship where they're able to ask questions, um, have a discussion, talk about treatment options. So I think this change in relationship dynamic um, does make the healthcare provider's job more difficult, but I think there's greater opportunity for more communication, better patient understanding and adherence in the long run with with this type of uh, relationship. Absolutely. And I know that you mentioned earlier how a lot of the times when um, the healthcare profession or industry is sharing information with the general public, a lot of this, a lot of this um, verbiage could be very technical. And I know for uh, a lot of our general public, it might be hard to understand a lot of information. So it's definitely a two-way street when it comes to the communication and the relationship between our healthcare workers, our patients. And I I definitely understand how it does have to be more of that partnership when it comes to decisions and education. And in terms of the health misinformation, there, there is quite a political valence now that's tied to that. And I think we've seen that a lot with COVID-19. And how can healthcare workers address this misinformation and conversations without escalating into political debates or maybe non-productive conversations? Absolutely. I think this is a really important topic. And um, I've done a little bit of research, but uh, definitely continued continuing to do more here. Um, but each patient has a specific worldview that shapes not only their uh, beliefs and behaviors every day, but their health uh, beliefs and behaviors. So research suggests it's incredibly difficult to change someone's mind if that new information you're giving them goes against their worldview. Um, So healthcare should be, in my opinion, and I think research is showing that, should be as politically ambivalent or neutral as as possible. So the focus instead should be entirely on scientific facts and building that relationship or uh, rapport with the patient and clearly explaining um, those those facts to the patient or the public. 
But some of the research I've done highlights the importance of healthcare providers and public health professionals remaining politically neutral. Uh, the more we can separate healthcare institutions um, and organizations from political and governmental communication and establishments, um, in my opinion, the better. <laughs> uh, this is true, honestly, for all sides of the political spectrum, because you and I, um, as public health professionals or healthcare providers, we enter the conversation too with a, a particular worldview. And so the more that we can really separate the two and focus on um, the patient's health and, and their well-being, I think the better. Yes, that's great insight. And I'm wondering as well, what are strategies that healthcare professionals or healthcare workers and providers can use to combat health misinformation within that one-to-one -one patient clinician relationship that you spoke to earlier? Because I imagine that these conversations must be quite challenging um, for healthcare professionals of all levels to have. Yeah, I this is a wonderful question because I this is where my my research lies. I think healthcare providers have such a unique opportunity to address and combat health misinformation um, in these one-on-one -on -one conversations, much more than you know, posting something on the internet or writing a blog on a website. Um, I think interpersonal communication and relationships are very important in shaping our beliefs and behaviors. And so there's a lot of trust that patients um, have with their primary nurse or doctor. Um, and these conversations can be important that important catalyst to stop uh, the spread of unbelief and health misinformation. So that's why I've chosen kind of to concentrate the bulk of my research um, on healthcare provider communication um, to combat this issue. But some research, uh, recent research that I've conducted analyzed communication between providers and their patients um, when having these conversations. And I, I first um, analyzed important verbal and nonverbal communication behaviors a provider's exhibit during these conversations and things that came out were um, clarity and messaging, immediacy and uh, vocalics and uh, body positioning, uh, active listening is so important, um, as well as different relationship building techniques, whether that be tone, um, rate of speech, positioning of your body, things like that. Um, and then additionally, communication combating health misinformation uh, should include things like scientific evidence-based explication, so a bunch of scientific facts. Um, and you could also include recommendations for evaluating health-related information and sources. Because people are looking up things online or on social media, you need to give them the tools for evaluating those type of sources. Like you need to get something that's peer-reviewed. Well, what is peer-reviewed? Things like that. Um, but, but it's not enough to simply lay out the facts for a patient. You also have to include an emotional component or a relationship building appeal to those conversations um, to really build rapport so they, they trust you. Um, and this is where you can make that impact in belief and behavior. So it's important to be persistent, consistent with these tough conversations. Um, and, and hopefully the providers can make a breakthrough in those one-on-one -on -one, uh, conversations. Thank you for sharing that. And, and that insight is so, so incredibly interesting because it also sounds like a lot of the one-to-one -one communications are very impactful because of our nonverbal communication and the impact that that can have when we do talk with someone about such uh, significant topics, especially those that are very um, 
you know, could be very emotionally charged or emotionally involved. And so, so that was an interesting um, finding, I feel, um, because a lot of the times people might not know how much nonverbals can actually impact the communication with someone else. Absolutely. And I'm also wondering, you know, more broadly, how can we as nurses and healthcare workers and providers use our trusted voices and expertise to influence the social conversations about the pandemic, vaccines, and other areas where misinformation um, is a big problem? Yeah, so um, I mentioned, you know, being active on different platforms. And and because health-related information is being consumed and spread across a myriad of of online platforms, it is important to, you know, for our public health professionals, medical providers, and, and healthcare institutions to be present, active, and inspiring on um, these different platforms. And research does support the correction of health misinformation being um, uh, by professionals increasing the likelihood of effective effectiveness. So it is important for, for us to continue to have voices on their platforms, but the, the truth is, though, that non-scientific, non-medical, non-public health online resources are being utilized for health-related information much more than official accounts. Um, so therefore, I think the best way to influence the conversations, at least at this time um, with the research we have, is to utilize that time spent directly one-on-one -on -one with patients in hospitals and clinics Um combating health misinformation interpersonally. I think nurses, in my opinion, um, and through some of my research, has uh, they have the greatest opportunity to spend long periods of time with patients, allowing for greater depth of conversation. So often nurses see patients, you know, at their very worst, uh, but, 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 um, provide care and love in, in that process. And this allows nurses to, to really build those relationships quickly to be able to speak truthfully to patients they encounter. And so I think nurses, in, in my opinion, um, have that particular edge for relationship building and um, combating health misinformation. That's great. And, and you're right. Nurses do spend quite a bit of time with patients, especially when they're in the inpatient um, setting. And so there is really ample opportunity, especially as one of the main communicators between the patient and everyone else in the healthcare team to open up those conversations and to have some of those really meaningful conversations and provide education and, and also listen to the patient and their perspective. And I wonder, do you have any recommendations for healthcare leaders or healthcare organizations and how we could start some of these efforts? Because I think a lot of times people might not think about this. Um, they know it's a challenge, but they might not prioritize this in their settings. Is there a way for um, healthcare leaders or organizations to really make this um, uh, work that's integrated in the healthcare setting? Yeah, I think it's important um, as research continues in this field, I think it's very important to uh, partner with uh, researchers and clinicians and start to do the research within uh, clinic settings, hospital settings. A lot of health misinformation research right now either focuses on, um, like I said, those one of two sides, either the receiver or the sender side. So you're either looking at the information that's put out or um, people or um, the, the other side of people receiving that information. And I think it's so important to research and study 
successful strategies. So going in and observing an actual conversation between a nurse and a patient or a doctor and a patient and analyzing what they do well, you know, is this a successful encounter? I think those real life um, research applications are so important. They don't happen often. A lot of times when you read research in this area, it's one or the other, and it's generally not in an actual you know, a clinic or hospital setting. And so seeing that dialogue between provider and patient is so important to see if these are successful strategies or what are the successful strategies that are out there to combat this issue. And so I think there needs to be more interdisciplinary partnership between um, researchers and clinicians uh, to to effectively stop this issue. That's great. And and this is such an interesting and compelling topic. And I, I'm surprised that we're already towards the end of our conversation. But is there any final words that you wanted to share with our audience and our listeners today, just in, in general about health information, misinformation or anything um, from your research? I, I just appreciate being on here and connecting. And this is one of the ways to have that partnership between um, nurses. And um, I feel like I'm more on the, the research side of things. And so I hope uh, these partnerships continue and we can talk about how to even past health misinformation, how to effectively communicate health information um, to the public and provide better, better education. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Taya, for your expertise. This has been such an interesting and helpful topic today, and I hope we could have you back in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. And our guest today was Dr. Taya Wozniak, Assistant Professor of Public Health and Healthcare Administration at Concordia University. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Email us at socialmedia at acnl.org and connect with us on LinkedIn and Facebook at ACNL Nurse. And as always, if you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and share. ACNL in Action is presented by the Association of California Nurse Leaders with new episodes on the first Friday of every month. To learn more about the show or ACNL in general, visit us at acnl.org. Thanks for listening.